Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the NFP Election Podcast. My name is Suzanne Spradley, and I'm here with my colleagues Chase Cannon and Kristen Boulat. This will be our final podcast of this series, though we will continue to track the various issues and push out information through our other um, forms of communication. We are here to review some of the legal, regulatory, and other issues that are related to the election in a nonpartisan manner. So we hope to provide you information that you won't typically hear on the various news channels through CNN or Fox or um, some of the other media. We're going to start with a quick discussion on the path to electing a president and vice president. We'll then briefly discuss the lawsuits, um, the COVID-19 team, the first 100 days under under a Biden administration, um, discuss uh, health care issues, and finish with a primer on the case that's before the Supreme Court today, actually, as we were recording on November 10th. So we'll start with the election process. We're so used to hearing the AP call the election within an hour of the last poll closing. But the true election process, and when we speak about it from a legal sense, actually takes longer. Um, the way it starts is with the final tally in each state um, of the voters, whether it be in person, their mail-in votes, the provisional votes, and that is concluded by the state's election officials. And then all 50 governors plus the mayor of D.C. send in who their slate of electors will be, and that's in something called a certificate of ascertainment. And that document, as I said, lists the electors for each state, and it must go into the U.S. Acarvis by by December 8th. Um, Each state actually determines their electors differently. And so sometimes when you're going up and you're pulling that lever to vote in your state, it even has some of the electors' names on it. But you are voting for a slate of electors. The Electoral College has 538 delegates, the 100 seats in the Senate, the 435 state representatives in the House, plus the three for D.C. Um, I think that there's possibly question this year about the electors and whether you could have a rogue elector. Um, There's been at least 32 states plus D.C. that have enacted laws that actually bind the votes of electors, so they must vote the way that they are elected. Each state will choose their slate of electors based on the popular vote in that state, Um, There has been some questions on the state's abilities to impose uh, how those electors vote, but we had a couple of cases rise to the Supreme Court just this year, and it was decided that uh, those two states that were, whose states were in question, um, had the ability to impose sanctions on what's called a faithless elector. So I think it's important to note that while faithless electors have occurred in the past, there's various counts between 100, and I think I've heard of 120, Um, They're not common in general, and never have they changed the outcome of a a presidential election. So if we go back to the process, the states have submitted their list of electors. Those electors meet on December 14th in the states at their state capitol to actually submit their votes for president and vice president. And then on the 23rd, the states send their electoral votes into the president of the Senate, Vice President Pence in this case. So um, that is the process. Congress will then convene on January 6th and count the electoral votes. And at that point is when the election is certified. Um, So obviously all of this is uh, with the backdrop of some lawsuits that are occurring right now. Um, And with that, I want to turn it over to Kristen to walk us through what that looks like. Thank you, Suzanne. 
as you were saying, in the next little over a month, a lot of things are going to happen to finally um, certify who the president-elect will be, get that person through the Electoral College and, and officially the president-elect. In the meantime, as you noted, there are several lawsuits that have been filed in various states, five states in particular, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, and Pennsylvania. In addition, the Trump team has signaled that they're going to uh, request a recount in Wisconsin. That recount won't be available till the Wisconsin election has been certified. So there are lots of steps between now and the Electoral College vote on the 14th of December. In Nevada, Michigan, Georgia, and Arizona, the various lawsuits that have been filed were mostly rejected by the court, either um, denied the motions or the lawsuit has been decided already. Those lawsuits tended to really focus on the fairness and um, legitimacy of the election, making sure that the ballots were properly received within the right amount of time, that they uh, can be certified as being valid ballots, and that there's enough space for observers of the election to actually observe the count. And that one has been a little bit tricky because of the need for social distancing and additional counting with the pandemic. So it's, as we've all seen, it's been an interesting confluence of uh, a pandemic, increased early voting and mail-in voting, and um, heightened in interest in making sure that we continue our tradition of free and fair and valid elections. Pennsylvania has had five lawsuits filed. The one that still is drawing some attention is one that has been um, brought to the U.S. Supreme Court. It's unclear if the Supreme Court will take it up, but it's an interesting legal question because the Pennsylvania state legislature chose, made some changes to how early voting and mail-in voting was to happen given the pandemic. One of the things that they did not do was extend the date for receipt of mail-in ballots. The Pennsylvania State Supreme Court, however, did extend the date. They moved it from November 3rd to November 6th. Um, and uh, lawsuits challenging that extension were not successful in front of the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. So the issue that is being presented to the U.S. Supreme Court for their consideration is whether the state Supreme Court can overrule what is ostensibly a power of the state legislature. Again, as I said, it's not clear that the U.S. Supreme Court will take up that lawsuit. But as we learned in the days of Bush v. Gore, that all of the courts, whether they're state Supreme Courts, um, other state courts, or our federal Supreme Court, are all very much aware of the shortened timeline and all of the steps that need to be accomplished in order to have a slate of valid electors ready to go by the 8th and then to actually do the Electoral College vote on the 14th of December. So we should see, hopefully see, some fairly quick um, decisions by Supreme Court, by the various courts on the legislation so that we can actually move forward with certifying the election. Kristen, is there any indication on whether um, should that that uh, should it be successful in the Supreme Court for the Republicans? Is there any indication whether that would make a change in the outcome? It's not it, it's not necessarily likely to make a change in the outcome. There, there aren't very many of those ballots that would be subject to this shortened timeline that were received between the 3rd and the 6th of, of November. Pennsylvania has also indicated that they have already set those ballots aside. 
so that they can easily adjust the account should this, the Supreme Court say that those are not validly and timely received. It's also important to keep in mind that as of right now, um, Joe Biden is about 40,000 votes ahead of President Trump in the Pennsylvania count. So that number of votes is, is relatively going to be small and not likely to change the overall outcome. But for those of us, Suzanne, who are legal nerds, it will be an interesting decision in terms of which one rules the, the, the state courts or the state legislatures. And as we're talking about this transition, the various lawsuits that are really working their way through state courts, possibly the Supreme Court and the whole process, the president-elect Joe Biden is in the process of spinning up his transition team and has been talking about what his priorities are going to be once he, if, when he takes office and for his first 100 days. And Chase is going to govern those first 100 days for us. Yeah, thanks, Kristen. It will be interesting to see how the lawsuits turn out for sure. Um, but assuming the results sort of hold, President-elect Biden and his administration, as you, as you mentioned, have indicated that they'll be extremely active right from the get-go. And we've kind of already seen this in action, right? We've, we've heard and seen President-elect Biden sort of gathering the troops. Now, he can't do anything formally until January 20th. Uh, that's uh, nothing formal until he's actually sworn in. But once that happens, he's good to go. And he's indicated that he's going to do a lot, even on day one. And uh, most likely he will do things via uh, executive orders on several different issues. And so before we talk about what those might be on, let's just do a quick 101 lesson on what an executive order is and what can be accomplished via an executive order. An executive order is, is basically a signed, written, and published directive from the President of the United States that manages operations of the federal government. Um, executive orders do have the force of law, but they are not legislation, so there's no congressional approval. Um, Congress cannot simply overturn them but Congress may pass legislation that might make it more difficult or even impossible to carry out the order, such as by removing funding. Um, only a sitting US president can overturn an existing executive order by issuing another executive order to that effect. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking at. And we've seen from presidency to presidency is a new president taking uh, office and uh, putting out new executive orders, getting rid of what the old president did. Um, there are limits on what an executive order can do, and that's what a lot of litigation has been on in the past. We won't get into the details on that, but the takeaway at a high level is that the president can direct the executive branch. Again, that's the regulatory agencies such as the IRS, the Department of Labor, Department of Health and Human Services, et cetera, to do certain things. And we've seen the current president do this a lot. And so we'll, we'll see President-elect Biden likely do the same, uh, reversing some of President Trump's executive orders and then uh, tacking on his own. So let's talk a little bit about the topics that Biden has said that he will hit with these executive orders. Most of these don't relate directly to benefits, uh, but worth discussing. First, Biden has indicated that he plans to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords which, as we know, the U.S. departed from during uh, the current administration. 
So we'll see Biden through this executive order re-engage with other nations as part of the Paris climate deals. Similarly, Biden plans to reverse course on the current withdrawal from the World Health Organization or the WHO. Uh, that actually, that uh, withdrawal actually hasn't happened yet. It's slated to take effect on July 6th of 2021. So Biden would sign in an executive order to make sure that that withdrawal does not happen, that we stay, uh, that the U.S. stays part of the uh, WHO. Biden also wants to immediately repeal the ban on immigration that targeted many Muslim majority countries and reinstate the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals or the DACA program. And during his campaign, he pledged to take action on all of those issues in his first day in office. So as you can see, there are quite a few big changes right away. Uh, this seems to be Biden's sort of modus operandi. He wants to jump in and go. Thanks to the way the constitution is designed, the president cannot unilaterally do too much. Um, we talked a little bit about those limits on what can be done via executive uh, uh, order. And so President-elect Biden will have to work closely with Congress, right, to get any major legislation changed or enacted. We'll get to that here in a minute with Suzanne, but first I wanna pass it back to you, Kristen, to talk a little bit more about another part of the 100 days or the first 100 days as it relates to the pandemic and the COVID task force that uh, Biden is assembling. Thanks, Chase. As you noted, one of the things that President-elect Biden said would be an initial priority is really helping the country deal with the pandemic that we're facing so that we can get it under control and, and keep people as safe as possible. So one of the things that he did, it was actually announced at the start of this week was that he put together a 13 member um, task force that's really focused on dealing with COVID. It's made up of a lot of scientists and medical experts. It has co-chairs of which include a former Surgeon General, a former head of the um, FDA, and then a public health expert. Those three people are tasked with helping to um, articulate the incoming administration's policy on COVID and how that they're gonna help address the pandemic. It's a 13 member panel, includes a lot of scientists. So it'll be interesting to see how these individuals really work together. Also it's pretty timely because at the start of this week, there was an announcement about the vaccine. That's um, one of the vaccines that's in development that it is showing to be very effective at stopping the contraction of the virus. So the task force will not only help to articulate the incoming administration's policy on how they're gonna help deal with the pandemic, but will also be very instrumental in this vaccine process. How are they going to create enough vaccines, get them ready for distribution and make sure that they're available, what their order priority is. So um, as, as we've noted with many of these things in a short period of time, I, I, it's likely that we'll see some, some significant sort of movements and plans put in place so that when it's time to get sworn in, the new administration is ready to sort of jump in and get started. Before, and I wanted to turn it back to Suzanne, who can talk about the split Congress and the movement toward executive orders and, and how um, congressional outcomes may really impact what the administration is actually able to accomplish. 
Yes, thank you. And I think before I get to the split Congress, I want to just mention in the lame duck session, we may see some movement on the next um, relief package. It, it remains to be seen whether whether we will see that actually occur in the lame duck session, but there certainly is a lot of pressure and there's about $170 billion that were left and spent from the PPP. So we could certainly see that next package expand who the funds are available for, but we'll have to wait on that. Um, and as you mentioned, aside from, of course, the presidential election, all eyes right now are on uh, Georgia for the uh, runoff elections um, that will occur on January 5th. And we won't get into a discussion really here today on, on really those Georgia races. And um, But we will discuss what the diff- various outcomes can do to healthcare policy, because that's what our that's the business that we're in, in terms of our group health plans and employers, and we want to discuss the various outcomes. So, um, and the Democrats would need to win both Georgia races in order to have a 50-50 split in the Senate with the vice president then breaking any ties. Um, if they don't uh, receive that, then we'd have a Republican agenda. Obviously, if the Democrats get a trifecta, then Biden has a much wider path for implementing his agenda. And if the Republicans are able to hold the majority, it will serve kind of as a check on his ability to enact um, broader impact laws and and really also a check on the judicial and cabinet appointments. There are about 4,000 presidential appointments, 1,200 of which have to go through the Senate for confirmation. So you can see how a Republican-led Senate would impact uh, those confirmations. So we've already heard of how the the various um, presidential appointments will differ depending on the outcome in the Senate. But let's let's focus on health care for a moment. And if we assume that there will be a Republican majority, we'll start there. That means that there will be no significant changes in health care for at least two years. Um, that means no Medicare for all, doubtful that there will be a public option offered. Um, Medicaid expansion, Medicare expansion will all be off the table. So those areas um, you know, that, that would make a, a larger leap would typically require the Democrats to control the Senate. So we then look to what are those areas that receive bipartisan support. And I think that there's a number that we could expect to see. Um, we can start with drug pricing. There's already um, a bill that's a bipartisan bill that has been presented by Senator Chuck Grassley that places a cap on out-of-pocket costs under the Medicare Part D program. It also penalizes companies that increase the price of drugs above inflation rates. Uh, We may see that they uh, include Medicare price negotiations or a ban on advertising for drugs with prescriptions. Um, But most importantly, we'll see some transparency for PBMs that's um, and, and in that process overall, I think that we could expect Biden to just have regulatory oversight of, of drug pricing. We don't know if that will include importation of drugs, but that's something that I think would also have bipartisan support. The next area that we would see bipartisan support is in the ACA stabilization, and that could include things like funding for exchanges or some flexibility with the 1332 waivers. And the reason that both sides will Uh, support ACA stabilization is because any type of stabilizing of the individual market really helps the employer market as well in the group market. And so I think you'll have bipartisan support generally in trying to stabilize that individual market. Third, and the issue that's most likely to come um, to fruition is uh, some type of legislation on surprise medical billing. And that gets support both from Republicans and Democrats. There's a difference on how to resolve some billing issues, whether it rely on a benchmark rate or an arbitration process. We saw some pushback against a benchmark rate because it would certainly decrease the amount of of revenue that a provider would receive. Um, However, on the other side, I think people support the benchmark rate because it provides some certainty 
and what the provider payments will be. Whereas the arbitration process has been scored by the C, by the Congressional Budget Office to really increase um, premiums overall. So uh, that's where you'll see that debate occur is on how to resolve those billing issues, whether it be by benchmark or by arbitration process. Lastly, that you will see some bipartisan legislation to promote retirement savings. There was there was one that was introduced just in October that had bipartisan support called the Securing a Strong Retirement Act of 2000. And it built on the SECURE Act that was enacted back in December of 2019. And among other things, that bill would require employers to automatically enroll employees in a 401k plan when one was created. And it creates different uh, incentives for small businesses to offer retirement plans. So those are, are probably the predominant areas that we'll see bipartisan support for changes. On the other side, if there is a Democrat-controlled Senate, I still don't think that you would expect to see Medicare for all because Biden is linked with the ACA. And so I think you will still see that he wants to build on the ACA, but you would see a public option introduced, a lowering of the Medicare eligibility age um, and additional subsidies that are loaded into the individual exchange. Um, but even then, you know, non-budgetary items require a 60 vote majority. And when there, otherwise it has to go through a reconciliation process with a simple majority. And remember that Biden still has to court the more moderate senators like Joe Manchin in West Virginia. So that's, uh, that is where some of the breaks, I guess you can say would be uh, within the Senate, even with a democratic controlled Senate. Um, Joe Manchin, for example, has expressed opposition to ending the filibuster. So some of those other areas that we've seen discussed may, may not make it through um, some of the moderates, Democrats in the Senate. So with all of that as the backdrop, we obviously have the Supreme Court. Today is November 10th, um, is the day that we're actually recording this podcast. And today we're they're hearing, the Supreme Court is hearing oral arguments. And so I want to turn it back to Chase to uh, give us some insight into that lawsuit and the impact that it could have overall. Yeah, thanks, Suzanne. As, it, as if we didn't have enough going on in D.C. already, right? Now we have this massive Supreme Court case going on. And as you mentioned, oral arguments are happening right now. Uh, but this case is all about the constitutionality of the ACA's individual mandate um, and whether the individual mandate is what is called severable from the rest of the ACA. So really quickly, the, the individual mandate is the ACA's requirement for all U.S. citizens to carry health insurance coverage or pay a penalty. The ACA, that, that individual mandate was previously upheld by the Supreme Court. Um, the court back then was led by Chief Justice John Roberts, who is still the Chief Justice, but basically the, their holding said that the individual mandate was constitutional because Congress has the power to tax and the individual mandate penalty was simply a tax. And remember that the argument back then was that Congress doesn't have the power to dictate individual choices. And that was sort of a commerce clause argument under the constitution saying that the commerce clause does not justify governmental creeds for individual choices in health insurance. But the Supreme Court, again, held that, uh, upheld the individual mandate as a tax or a, a, an exercise of Congress's taxation power. Congress enacted the Tax Cuts Act, which made the individual mandate penalty zero dollars. So the argument this time around that we're sort of hearing up in the Supreme Court is that now the, the individual mandate penalty is zero dollars. There's no justification for the individual mandate itself. In other words, there's no more tax, therefore the individual mandate doesn't have the same justification from the Supreme Court before. 
And then as the lower court held in this case, the individual mandate is so intertwined with the rest of the ACA that the entire ACA must fall. So that's the severability argument. So both sides are up there arguing before the Supreme Court. As we all know, the court's makeup has changed dramatically since 2013. We, we now have six sort of right-leaning justices with the recent additions of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. So we'll see how this comes out. Most think, and again, this is just based on sort of our research and what we're, we've talked to other legal experts or read their sort of thoughts, most think that the individual mandate will probably be held unconstitutional, but that it will be severable from the rest of the ACA. In other words, it won't really impact the rest of the ACA. Um, there are several arguments that would sort of justify that conclusion uh, that I wanted to mention really quickly. The idea that Congress had the chance to repeal the entire ACA in 2017 and chose only to zero out the penalty, that indicates that Congress was actually okay with the rest of the ACA staying in place. In addition, there's the argument that the ACA actually has been working and in effect here since 2017 when the individual pen mandate penalty was zeroed out. So we have almost three years of the ACA uh, in, in effect without the individual mandate. And so the argument is if the individual mandate was so intertwined with the rest of the ACA, how did the ACA sort of survive or work for the last three years? Um, there's also uh, the litmus questions here on whether anyone has really even been harmed by the individual mandate and whether the case applies nationwide or only to the states that have challenged it. Um, so these are the kind of things that the justices will be looking at, and those are the kind of arguments um, that are, are being put forth before the, the court. Um, on severability, there are, are some indications that the new justices believe it would be severable, but ultimately we'll just have to wait and kind of see how this goes. Um, interesting to uh, listen to, again, going back to Kristen's comment, for us legal nerds, we'll be tuning in, listening to all of the arguments and seeing what kind of questions the justices will be asking and whether that's an indicator of the way they may uh, ultimately come out on this case. So Biden's healthcare agenda, as Suzanne mentioned a little bit, would pr prioritize shoring up the ACA, not trying to tear it down and not trying to go further to the left with a Bernie Sanders style single payer or Medicare for all system. Uh, but a Biden uh, administration, their healthcare plan initiatives would depend heavily on how this ACA lawsuit plays out at the Supreme Court. So we're right in the thick of it here with oral arguments happening now. We won't likely get a decision until next year it could be as early as late February, early March, or as late as June of 2021. So we'll just kind of be in a wait and see mode on this one. Um, Suzanne, anything there you wanted to add at all? No, what I'd like to say though, is that we, if you will uh, follow NFP, we have a, an election series of webinars that will, will occur in early December. And it's gonna be led by uh, Admiral Stavridis who sits on our board of directors. And so he will have a fascinating discussion will be the first uh, of, in the series for the webinar. So please watch for communications on that and we will be able to dig in a bit deeper um, on some of these issues that we've touched on today. So with that, I thank you, Kristen and Chase, for joining me. And uh, that is the end of our podcast series, at least. But stay tuned to NFP for other podcasts on important subjects that affect our clients. 
Thank you for listening to the final episode in our 2020 election update podcast miniseries. Specialized expertise is more critical than ever to navigating complex challenges and risks. NFP continues to invest in people and resources to ensure our expertise provides meaningful value to our clients. Join us in December for our 2020 election webinar series. For dates, registration details, and speaker information, visit nfp.com.